The passage that we have before us this morning, Psalm 73, has a lot to say about envy. And in particular, it wants to paint for us this morning two perspectives on the world. One foolish perspective on the world that is dominated by envy toward others and pessimism toward self and toward God. And another perspective, a wise perspective that is governed by faith in God and hope. Psalm 73 is a powerful testimony to the foolishness of the perspective of envy and the power of the perspective of the righteous. So please go with me now there to Psalm 73 so we can take a look at these perspectives that the Lord wants to show us this morning. This is on page 485 in the Black Pew Bibles you have in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take this Bible and keep it and read it. If you don't have an ESV Bible, if you have a different kind of Bible, we still would like you to take it and keep it. There are very few circumstances under which we would not like you to have a Bible that you can read at home. With that in mind, let's attend to what the Lord says to us in Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten opposition, oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought 
how to understand this? It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. (coughs) You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to open up our hearts to this truth, to see what he would speak to us this morning clearly, and to give us hearts willing to live it out in our daily living. Would you pray with me now? Lord, we come to you because you are the source of all good. And we admit freely and gladly this morning that we need you. And so we pray that you would come. That you would enlighten our dark minds that cannot understand apart from your enabling. Quicken our hard hearts which so often do not want to submit to your will and break down the walls that remain in our hearts so that we might receive your word, that we might love your word, that we might obey your word. Lord, do all this by the power of your Holy Spirit working within us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Last week, Pastor Taylor preached on a single verse of Proverbs and broke it into two halves. And similar to that, this psalm is also broken up into two halves. The first two verses of the whole psalm give us a sort of frame, a kind of summary of what the psalmist has learned. Here's what he says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, 
my steps had nearly slipped. The first thing that the psalmist wants to say after going through this difficult trial is that God is good to the righteous. The psalmist had a very foolish perspective throughout the first half of the psalm. In verses 3 through 15, we see the perspective of the foolish. Until we get to the very middle of the psalm, verses 16 to 17, and we see that at that moment, the psalmist's eyes were opened to how wrong the perspective of envy was and how God gave him a new and right perspective. So that's the overall structure of this psalm. The foolishness of the perspective of envy, God's decisive action to change the mind of this psalmist, and the true perspective of wisdom that follows in verses 18 through the end. I think that there's a lot that the psalmist wants to show us about the perspective that we have on the world, about the ways that we look at the wicked and at the righteous and at the Lord himself. Each section is wrong or right about the wicked, the righteous, and about God. So let's take a look at what it has to say to us this morning. The first mistake we see in this foolish perspective is that the psalmist sees the wicked prospering, or seems to. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That is his first mistake, the first mistake of the foolishness of envy. Who are the wicked? He goes on for several verses to describe them. In this verse that we just read, he describes them in two different ways. He calls them arrogant, and he calls them prosperous. And it's that prosperity that calls the psalmist to envy him. This twofold description, on the one hand of arrogance and on the other of prosperity fills the description of verses 4 through 9. These are the two themes of how he describes these people in verses 4 through 9. They are arrogant, and they are getting away with it. For their prosperity, he explains in verses 4 to 5 that they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are sleek and fat, And they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And then in verse 7, he adds another repetition of this similar prosperity when he says, their eyes swell out through fatness. Now, that doesn't sound immediately like a description of prosperity, but I assure you, it is. It's a strange truth that we live today in a country when you can be poor and fat. I want us to let that sink in for a moment. You can be poor and overweight in this country because you can eat very cheap, very unhealthy, 
bad food for you. Take that perspective, put it to the side, and think back to subsistence farming. It's a very different perspective when you think about the fact that in ancient Israel, so many people lived as farmers, growing olives, growing grapes, figs, other fruits of the earth, in hills and mountains. They don't call it the Judean hill country for nothing, and its similarity to the Texas hill country is not small. So imagine making your life as a farmer growing olives in Texas limestone. And you can understand why the psalmist looks at fatness and sleekness as positive instances of prosperity. What would be fat today? We don't look around at fat people as a general rule and say, I wish I was a lot more like that and, and overtook them maybe. Maybe if I was 20 pounds more. That's not the way that our society looks at things. So we need to shift a little bit to today when he says he envies their fat sleekness and their swollen eyes from fat. How would we look at that? We might envy the Beamer that they drive. We might look at their house, whether or not it's got a pool. We might look at all the worldly signs of success that most people flaunt and display for everyone to see. But fat and sleek don't simply mean healthy and prosperous. There are two other passages in Scripture that use this phrase, fat and sleek. And both of them are relevant for our understanding of this psalm this morning. In Jeremiah 5, verses 27 to 28, the prophet Jeremiah speaks of the wicked when he says... Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich, fat and sleek. In ancient Israel, it is very difficult to become fat and sleek. And what this passage wants to say to us this morning is that it's not usually a surprise when someone who found out that they have great worldly success is shown later on to have gotten there through not entirely truthful means. And this is not a story that we're unfamiliar with today either. Jeremiah 28 finishes this way. He says, They know no bounds in deeds of evil. 
So the wickedness is the cause of their prosperity. The other passage with this phrase is Deuteronomy 32, verse 15. In Moses' song, at the end of his life, Moses' final recounting of the history of the people of Israel, calling Israel by the name Jeshurun, Moses says the following about Israel. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Why would someone do that? Why, after you have found success, worldly success, in the case of Israel, given to them by God Most High, why would you kick? Why would you scorn the one who gave you your blessing? Why would you forsake the rock of your salvation? This is something in the heart of man, that when we find ourselves comfortable, when we begin to believe that we can rely upon ourselves, we tell ourselves that we should rely on ourselves, that we have relied on ourselves, that any blessing that we experience is from our own ingenuity and diligence. And this is exactly why it's no coincidence that this uh, psalmist describes the wicked as prosperous, both in their health and in their wealth, and he describes them as arrogant, confident in their own ability to get what they want, to do what they want, and to be what they want. And this is why they are so easy to envy, because our hearts want the same thing. We wish they, we had their confidence. Have you ever looked at someone with confidence and said, man, you can just walk into a room and get things done. I wish I could do that. I can't, can't speak worth a dime. That's, that's a terrible metaphor. Or society values what confident people can get done. They manage to get out of trouble, as this passage talks about. Have you ever seen someone talk their way out of trouble? As a high school teacher, I can tell you, it takes confidence. And it's not usually a good thing. Verses 4 and 5 said, They have no pangs until death. They are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Have you ever known people like this? I have. I have known people like this. When I was thinking about it the past several weeks, a person came to my mind, not a real person, don't worry, a fictitious person, someone who gets away with everything. It's it's almost the definition of getting away with everything. Some of you may not know this movie. Most of you, I think, will. His name is Ferris Bueller. Right? I'm not trying to, like tear down Ferris Bueller in anyone's childhood right now, so don't take it that way. But just objectively speaking, when you look at Ferris Bueller, here is someone who has no pangs. Right? He decides he wants to take a day off of school. 
He tricks everybody. He lies through his teeth and gets everything. And when I was a teenager, when some of you were teenagers, you looked at that movie, he got to the end, he got away with it all, and you were like, oh, I want to be him. We do. People who can speak with confidence, people who are arrogant, people who know how to get what they want, they're hard not to envy. The psalmist goes on further to describe the arrogance of the wicked in the next set of verses. He adds, starting in verse 6, that pride is their necklace. Violence covers them with a garment. And again, beginning in verse 7, he says, Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven. And their tongue struts through the earth. Like we read in Jeremiah 5, they know no bounds in deeds of evil. At this point, I want to stop and make two clarifications, because they're important. First, it's worth noting that Scripture doesn't say that being rich makes a person wicked. Sometimes it seems like it comes close, but it doesn't. Rather, wealth is a great, I repeat, great temptation toward wickedness. But too many people in Scripture had wealth without filling their hearts with pride or malice or oppression. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all are described as having great wealth, abundant possessions. And Job, even though he's wealthy, is given even more wealth by the Lord at the end of the book of Job as a reward for his righteousness. Zacchaeus is a very wealthy tax collector. But the distinction is that he is willing to give it all away for Jesus when he meets him. And yet, at the same time, we want to be perfectly clear, that's not that many people, and the vast majority of people described in Scripture as rich are not so favorably looked upon. Scripture is clear that wealth is dangerous, In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us pretty plainly that riches are not an asset, but a liability. In Matthew 19, 24, after Jesus has finished speaking to the rich, young ruler, who has now gone away from Jesus, saddened because he was unwilling to give away his possessions for Jesus, Jesus explains to his disciples in no unclear terms saying in Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, Although being wealthy doesn't make us wicked, this passage and all of Scripture wants to warn us against the dangers of wealth. 
The second important clarification I would like to make is that for most of us, when we hear descriptions like we heard of the wicked in Psalm 73, we don't tend to hear these descriptions and feel convicted to our hearts. These people sound like hardened criminals, you might say. Not normal people like me. When did I ever wear violence as a garment? But I want to push back against that idea. Just because you don't think that you're a hardened criminal doesn't mean you're not one. And it doesn't mean you're alone in thinking that way. I came across a survey of over a thousand criminals in jail who all uh, had a very unique perspective about themselves. Three quarters of them claimed from jail that they are not really a criminal, despite the fact that they admitted an average of 41 previous offenses between them. And only a quarter of them said that their crime hadn't hurt anybody, yet they don't feel like they're really a criminal. If you don't think you're that bad, let me give you a word of caution. That doesn't mean anything. Your perspective on your own badness is not really that helpful, about as helpful as being in jail and not thinking that you're a criminal. Scripture is clear. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so the first mistake that this foolish perspective is believing that the wicked prosper. But the second mistake of this foolish perspective comes immediately following in verses 10 and 11. Look with me. See what response the wicked get from God's people. Starting in verse 10, the psalm continues, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? The foolish perspective of the envious is that God's not watching or he's not acting, or he doesn't care. They want to be like the wicked. They turn back after them. I want to ask you for a moment, do you know what you envy? We don't all envy the same thing. Do you know what you turn back for? It's often different in different stages of life. For students, it might be school success. You might look at someone who's doing well in school and be envious. Although, it's perhaps more likely that you look at someone with social status and feel envious, someone who's cool. Or maybe you look at somebody who's attractive and you have that little grip of envy in your hearts. Maybe, if you're not in one right now, you're envious of someone else's romantic relationship. Has that ever happened to you? 
As you get older, you might begin to envy someone for their job, or for their house, for their wealth, their financial stability. It's very hard to be living paycheck to paycheck and not envy those who don't. Maybe you're envious of someone else's family because you feel like your family is not put together the way that you'd like. Or maybe you envy the appreciation and respect of others. You desperately wish you had it. You don't feel like you do. This psalm wants to warn you against your love for these things and caution you against looking at the wicked and trying to emulate them to gain what you really love. But there's another group of people that this passage wants to point out to us, starting in verse 12. Not people who look at the wicked and and fawn over them or want to be like them. In 12 through 15, we see a group of people who look at the wicked and growl. Not literally. He says in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? For all the day long I have been stricken, And rebuked every morning, if I had said, I will speak less, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So this wrong perspective looks at the wicked and sees them prospering. It looks at the righteous and sees them suffering in vain, uselessly. And this too is really easy to envy. Do you ever feel like it's of no benefit to fight fair? One person's lie, one person's poor choice can undo so much of what we strive for. It can be very easy to feel like I've wasted my effort. The things that I've tried to do right, the truth that I've tried to tell, the kindness I've tried to show, the commitment and faithfulness I've tried to give to others or to the Lord, it's just not paying off. Even if you don't think that way, sometimes you speak that way. Sometimes we talk about how the wicked get away with everything. Sometimes we talk about how it doesn't pay to be the nice guy. Even if when we're reading our scriptures, we might think of it differently. Sometimes we get caught in habits of speaking or thinking that are just not true. And here's what the psalmist wants to say about thinking or speaking that way. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, that I will affirm all of these things that I've been thinking, I wouldn't have just spoken untruth. I would have betrayed 
the generation of your children. Scripture is clear. Good ends, like wealth or security, do not justify bad means. And bad ends, like suffering, don't invalidate the righteousness that God calls us to. When you say out loud, it doesn't pay to be honest, or there another one goes, get in the way scot-free, or some such comment, you are harming the minds and hearts of the people that hear you. And you're doing exactly what this psalmist was tempted to do. Don't do it. Speak the truth. But the psalmist comes out of this perspective. Back at the beginning in the summary, he's looking at it in the rearview mirror. But here in verses 16 and 17, we see his change in perspective. Let's read it together. It reads, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. This is the turn of the entire psalm. From the foolish perspective to the truth. And in verses 18 through the end, we see how his perspective has changed about the wicked, about the righteous, and about God himself. So join me in verse 18. He says, Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Before, the wicked had success. They had no trouble. What is the truth that the psalmist has learned from entering into the sanctuary of God? That whatever success they have, it is slippery. It seemed solid. It seemed like they had everything going for them. That's why it was easy to envy them. But it is not You set them in slippery places, and they fall to their ruin. We also see that the downfall of the wicked is sudden. He says how they are destroyed in a moment. And that downfall is complete. Swept away utterly by terrors. What a different picture he paints here in this second half of the psalm. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Any memory of their former success is gone. Like a dream, it's vanished. Probably don't remember it five minutes after you wake up. That's how quickly the success of the wicked will vanish 
when the Lord acts. Now, you remember the two kinds of people we mentioned in verses 10 and 11 on the one hand and 12 through 15 on the other? The one person who sees the wicked and envies them, the other one who sees the wicked and burns with bitterness. Now we come to the psalmist's recognition of what was happening in his own heart. In verse 21, he reads, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. But take a look now at his new perspective on God. Let's let's take a look at it in verses 23 to 26. It's glorious. His new perspective on the righteous and his new perspective on God. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What a change. What an unbelievable change. His old perspective on the righteous was that they suffer in vain, needlessly, day after day, with no action from the Lord, because he doesn't see or care or act. What's his perspective on the righteous now? He says he's close to the Lord. He says he's continually with the Lord. He says he's supported by the Lord. He says, you hold my right hand. You give me, you guide me with your counsel. And unlike the slippery success of the wicked, the success that he paints for the righteous is permanent and stable. He says, afterward, you will receive me to glory. That is not a slippery place. Look at his changed heart, his changed desires. He envied the wicked. Now he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Wow. He continues in verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. Hmm. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's interesting. His flesh and his heart may fail. We've taken a look at the flesh of the wicked. Their flesh is fat. Their flesh is sleek. They are in full bloom of health. And he says, my flesh may fail. 
And he goes even further to say, even my heart may fail. You have changed my heart to desire nothing on earth besides you. And he says, my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What a completely different picture he paints from what he painted in the first half of the psalm. He wants to be with God and near God. Ultimately, there's only one way to be near God. There's only one way to find the kind of permanent, stable success that we all long for. We all long for it. And when we envy the wicked, we don't do it because we want the wrong thing. We do it because we want it the wrong way. What we want is to be stable and secure and firm forever. And envying the wicked is not how to get there. There's only one way to get there, and that's to be near to God. If you've not placed your full and complete trust in God as the strength of your heart, You are in slippery places. You may not feel like you're the wicked. And when you look around, you don't see that you're doing anything much worse than anyone else. It's easy not to feel bad when we compare ourselves to others. There's always somebody more wicked out there. But look with me at verse 27. Here the psalmist makes it plain. He says, Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. If you are far from the Lord, then this is you. It doesn't matter that you haven't robbed a bank. It doesn't matter that you haven't killed anyone. If you are far from the Lord, you will perish. If you are unfaithful to him... He will put an end to you. That is his promise. In contrast, the psalmist says, I have made the Lord my refuge. We saw back in verse 15 that he had wanted to speak a certain way about the wicked, that they got away with it, about the righteous, that it wasn't worth it. But we see now right speech at the end of verse 28. He says, For me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So I encourage each of us this week as we go about our weeks, don't get caught thinking like the wicked, or speaking like the wicked, get in the habit of saying, God vindicates the righteous. Cheaters don't get away with it because the Lord doesn't like it. And a clean heart isn't vain. It's worth everything that it costs.
Get in the habit of reminding yourself of that. It's very hard to see the right way, according to the Lord's truth, because it's not obvious when you look at a situation. There are two trulies in this psalm. Truly you set the wicked in slippery places, when it doesn't look like it's very slippery, in verse 18, and then in verse 1. Truly the Lord is good to those who are pure in heart. The wicked are not prospering. They are ready to fall. The righteous aren't suffering in vain. They have something greater than the world can offer. And even greater, they have a reception into glory forever. And God does care. He is watching. He knows. And he is ready to act. Do you believe that God is good? It takes new eyes to see it. And you can only get those from going to the Lord. Let's go to him now in prayer. And ask him to give what only he can. Lord God in heaven, you are mighty and powerful, and your will never falters. What you establish shall come to pass, and what you establish is good. Lord, it is hard sometimes to see that they don't really get away with it, and neither will we. It is hard sometimes to see that a pure heart is worth everything it costs. Lord, we pray you would open our eyes. Fill our hearts with the truth that you offer in your word. Help us to see what you have told us is true. Help us to cling to it when the loves of our hearts draw us to turn back after the wicked. There is none righteous before you, Lord. Our hearts have failed in the past and will fail again. But we affirm now that you are the strength of our heart. We trust in you to hold us up when we cannot hold ourselves and to draw us back to yourself. And for this, you alone deserve all glory and honor and praise. We ask it through the only name that has any power, Jesus Christ. Amen.